pray and we'll get into our text. Father of mercy, thank you for this day that you've given us. And in your Son and by your Spirit, we will rejoice and be glad in it. We recognize that joy is the mark of a Christian. So, Father, we pray if there's anyone here today that is joyless, that you would restore unto them the joy of their salvation in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Christ, may their joylessness drive them to repentance and faith in him. We pray that this word today would be a means of grace towards that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, much has been made over the previous weeks of the conversion to Jesus Christ of the hip hop, hop I can't even say it because I don't listen to it, <laughs> hip-hop artist Kanye West. And I personally have no reason to doubt that it's a true conversion. In Psalm 110, the psalmist says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we recognize by the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death and the evil one that he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in session as king. And he's ruling as king. And that text goes on and says, in that day, in the day of his power, people will freely offer themselves to him. And so one of the evidences of Christ's reign at the right hand of the Father is the conversion of sinners. And I would submit to you the resurrection from the grave of Jesus Christ is the ground of our regeneration. And so Kanye West's regeneration is no more miraculous than our regeneration because it's grounded by the definitive miracle of miracles, Jesus' resurrection from the grave. But though our salvation is all of grace, from beginning to end, the Lord uses means. And in Kanye's case, it's, it's been noted that there are a few events in his life that have jolted him, sobered him, if you will, poking holes in the walls of his apparent invincibility, an, a, an illusion of invincibility, at least, that has been fueled by his fame and his fortune, events that have exposed his inability to withstand the weight of celebrity. His inability to withstand self-justification and self-reliance. And one of those events occurred in 2007. At the height of his celebrity and stardom, his beloved mother, Donde West, who alone raised her, raised Kanye, died suddenly and tragically from the complications that came from her surgery, plastic surgery. Kanye blamed himself for the, for the death. He, he singled out his own vanity, his wealth, and his pursuit of glamour, his celebrity that was behind his mother even having plastic surgery. And this sent him to a very, very dark place. 
And his response in that dark place was to write an album of lament in 2008. The name of the album was 808s and Heartbreak. It was songs of lament. The lament of a mourner without hope. The lament of a mourner without hope. For example, one of the songs on the album was titled On Coldest Winter, where he elegizes his mom's loss, his, the death of his mom, and he writes, Goodbye, my friend. I won't ever love again. Ever again. And that reflects the hopelessness of death for the unbeliever, which is exactly who Kanye was at that time. For the unbeliever, death is the definitive disturber of worldly peace. But even for believers, when death comes, we mourn, don't we? Even when it comes by natural causes, we mourn. Samuel was a, a case in point. He had lived a long and fruitful life, and yet when Samuel died, the nation mourned. And texts like ours today, which is a song of lament from the perspective of a believer, the antithesis of what we see on that 2008 album from Kanye, texts like these are means of grace. Because they give us permission to grieve as believers. It also shows us how to honor even unbelievers in death. It's a great example for how to do a funeral for an unbeliever. But maybe most importantly, it forces us to confront the reality of God's judgment on sin, God's judgment on idolatry. Something that we tend to ignore in a culture that kind of sanitizes death. We don't even like to use the word death. We use the word pass away or the phrase pass away, which, by the way, was coined by Mary Baker Eddy. Now, last time we, we saw David had received word that Saul and Jonathan had been killed and the Philistines had defeated the Israelites he receives word from an Amalekite who comes and, and essentially brags that he was the one that, that put Saul out of his misery. And Saul, David, recognizing the wickedness of that, in his first act as king, a status yet to be officially recognized, he puts this Amalekite to death. He executes him. Now, David's second act as king is to write an elegy, a, a lamentation, an inspired lamentation. Grief put into words. And the first thing we see in this passage, verses 17 and 18, is the introduction to the lament. Look with me in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. Of course, the longest lamentation in the Bible is the book of the Lamentations, written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. But here we see a very important lamentation, and we'll see why in just a moment. Verse 18, and he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah, Behold, 
It is written in the book of Jashar. And so, in Hebrew, the title given to this poem is The Bow. And I don't know why this is. I've looked at every word-for-word translation to see how the various translations of the Bible have translated this. And every translation except the ESV translates this in some way like this. The bow should be taught to the people of Judah. The bow. Literally, the bow. Like a bow and arrow. The ESV just says it should be taught to the people of Judah. So I think we're missing something there in the ESV. And so the Hebrew, literally, the bow should be taught to the people of Judah. Judah was David's tribe. They would be the first to recognize him as the king. It will take some real struggle for the other tribes to recognize him as king, as we'll see. But by titling this lament as the bow, most commentators believe that David was planning to use this as a motivation for his military by reminding them of the loss that came at the hands of the Philistines. So important is this lament, it says it was written in the book of Jashar. So we read this text this week as a family, and I said, so um, what is the book of Jashar? And my kids were looking at me like they are supposed to know. They've been raised in the church. They've been raised being taught the Bible. But they were a little concerned that they didn't know. Well, the reality is no one knows. We don't know what the book of Jashar is. They knew. And we know that it's mentioned elsewhere in one other place. Joshua 10, verse 13. But... Even though the book has never been discovered, now the word Jashar means upright. It's the book of the upright. Uh, it appears to have been a collection of, of psalms and poetry that kind of drove home God's great works among and through his people. And so he says, it should be taught to the people of Judah as it is written in the book of Jashar. And that brings us to the lament in verse 19. David writes, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Now, how could a person that is so entrenched in sin as Saul was be described in this kind of language? Your glory. Well, there was a common grace on Saul. In, indeed, there is common grace on everyone as God's image bearers, but there was a common grace on Saul that magnified God's glory. And that common grace is true of all humankind, even unbelievers. There's a common grace on every believer. And that's how we make sense of their, their intelligence, their, their morality, uh, the valiant things that they may accomplish in their lives. There's a common grace. And so when we see people that are gifted and moral and valiant, but who aren't believers, that doesn't mean that God's glory isn't reflected 
in that person. It doesn't mean they're saved. It just means that they reflect God's glory as His image bearers. You don't lose the imago Dei in your sin. Now, it's distorted by your sin, it, and therefore it misrepresents God in your sin, but we don't lose the image of God. And so there is a glory with every person, including Saul. Like the, the moon. The moon does not produce the light of, that we see. It reflects the light of the sun. And so God's image bearers in, in many ways reflect the glory of God. And in, in Saul's case, he was a, a magnificent specimen in many ways. He, he looked like a king for one thing. He was tall and regal. And we're going to see more things about him that magnified the glory of God. But having said that, notice... Your glory is slain on your high places. Now, if you spent much time in the Old Testament, you know that the high places most often are the places of pagan worship. In other words, God had given Israel a king like they wanted. And what did they want? A king like the nations. They had rejected God as their king, and so God gave them a king replacement, an idol, if you will. And now their idol has been sacrificed on the high places. I think it's a double entendre because he was killed on a mountain in the hills of Gilboa, but he was slain because of idolatry. And so even as David mourns, he subtly reminds us of the wages of sin, of the wages of idolatry. Indeed, the mighty are not immune to judgment. How the mighty have fallen. David says, the mighty fall. And though David wants Judah to remember this, and it's important that all God's people remember this. The mighty always fall. He doesn't want the Philistines to remember it. Notice in verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Now, David had a real experience in Gath. He'd been there. He'd spent a lot of time there. It was one of the five Philistine cities. And he says, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. We don't know exactly where Ashkelon is, but most scholars believe that Gath represented one end of the area of the Philistines and Ashkelon represented the other end, which meant he is saying he does not want this published at all in the land of the Philistines. He says, publish it not. Let the daughters, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Now, that language of uncircumcised is referring to the fact that circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. He's, he's talking about those who have not been circumcised in the sense that they're not a part of the covenant people. And so he is concerned that this would be published. Now, we saw in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel that the good news, and that was the language that was used, of Israel's defeat... And Saul's death was published in the land of the Philistines. 
It says that the messengers went even to the temples of the Philistines and published the good news of Saul's death. It was their gospel, which is no gospel at all. And David likely did not know that yet. He just found out that Saul had been killed. But what we do see here is his jealousy. His jealousy for the reputation of the king. His jealousy for the reputation of God's people. His reputation for God himself. Of course, we got a, a taste of David's concern after 9-11, didn't we? After 9-11, there were videos published from the Middle East of women and children dancing in the streets because of the atrocities, because of the tragedies that occurred here, the evil that had occurred here on 9-11. So we get a taste. We have a bit of understanding of why David didn't want it celebrated among the Philistines. But having said that, his concern is much more than just national pride. This is, this is a man concerned about the glory of God and the glory of his people. But having said that, he did want this loss to be memorialized at Gilboa. Notice in verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa. That was where Saul had been killed. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. And so David is calling the site where Saul and Jonathan died to participate in the morning by lacking dew and rain. And so he wants Mount Geboa to become a memorial of Israel's disgrace. Now what's behind this? I was thinking about that. Well, the pain that we all experience when a loved one dies is made even more acute by the fact that the world seems to go on as though nothing happened, even though we know something has happened, something horrible has happened. And we might say as well that the Abrahamic covenant was the promise that the seed of Abraham would be the means by which God would make all things new. It's important to recognize the Abrahamic covenant follows the curse on the nations at the Tower of Babel. And so when God comes to Abraham and uses that five-fold promise of blessing, he is saying, I'm going to reverse the curse on the nations through your seed. But here, instead of Israel and Israel's king, the seed, playing a role in reversing the curse, they were under the curse. And so David is saying Mount Geboa should reflect this notion of decreation because that's what's happened. Instead of reversing the curse, the curse has been exasperated by the death of Israel, the death of the king. 
Indeed, Mount, should, Mount Geboa should be cursed, for there, he says, the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Now, in the ancient Near East, the, the shield was a sign of power. And that's why we, when we read, the Lord is our shield, that's very comforting. It, it's, a, it's a picture of, of, of skill and power and strength. And, and the, the shields were anointed so that these, with oil so that these shields would shine in the face of the enemies of God. And so I think David is using a double entendre here. So uh, in one sense, this is the actual shield, the one who has lost, the, that has lost its anointing. It's laying in the dirt, but that shield re represents the one that holds it who had lost his anointing. In fact, two times we see in this text that David or Saul was anointed, and now this unoiled shield in the dirt on the Mount Gilboa dramatically symbolizes the now unanointed Saul. In other words, what David could not bring himself to say of Saul, he says of Saul's shield. All right? And when you collect these images together, just what we've seen so far, the mighty have fallen, um, the wicked rejoice, and Mount Geboa is memorialized in despair, David clearly recognizes the shame that comes with sin and with idolatry and with God's judgment on sin and on idolatry. In light of the promises that were made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. And in light of the promises made to Moses that God's enemies would fall under the hand of Israel as long as Israel was faithful to the covenant. The only explanation for the loss at Gilboa was Israel's violation of the covenant. Their disobedience, their idolatry. Furthermore, David's lament over the death of someone as mighty and gifted as Saul reminds us that those who are of high estate in this life are a delusion. Psalm 62, 7. What we perceive to be regal and of high estate in this present age, it's all an illusion. Gifts and power and prestige do not exempt us from God's judgment on sin. Even what you read in verse 22, notice what it says in 22 of Saul. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Both were renowned for their battlefield expertise. You see what Saul's doing here? He's honoring a man who in many ways was worthy of honor. He's the image of God. And so he's seeing ways to honor this man, even though the man was not even a true believer. Of course, the bow of Jonathan helped David escape Saul's wrath a couple of times. We saw in chapter 14 that Jonathan led his men into a remarkable victory against the Philistines. And 
I think this language here gives us a hint at why David named the lament what he did. He named it the bow. And notice in verse 22, he's talking about the bow of, of Jonathan. Furthermore, the sword of, of Saul returned not empty. Of course, beginning with Nahash the Ammonite. Remember him? His name means serpent. And Saul's first act as king was to crush the head of the serpent, the Ammonite. And on and on we read of, of Saul's military exploits, summarized in chapter 14, verses 47 and 48. Of course, this isn't a balanced biography. I think it's important for us to remember even at funerals. Times of lament are not times for that, to balance the biography. This was a recognition that there were things honorable about Saul. That Saul's death was indeed a tragedy, and David is driving home why it was so. And David is teaching us here that there, uh, there's a time to honor what's been lost. We're to outdo one another in giving honor to one another, Romans chapter 12. Of course, not at the expense of truth. You've all been in those funerals where you hear of this pagan who lived a life of paganism, who never bowed the knee to Jesus. There was not one thing about that person's life that was under the lordship of Christ, and they preached that person into heaven. Well, that, that's not what Saul's, uh, David is doing here. He's not preaching Saul into heaven. Only those who bow the knee to Jesus will go to heaven. Only those who submit their lives to Jesus will go to heaven. So we're not to preach things about people that are not true for the sake of grace. But having said that, we do see here him honoring this man in areas that he was worthy of honor. Of course, we never do that at the expense of the truth. And I think every funeral should remind us, and it's certainly implied with David here, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But times like these should stress also the good that's been lost. And there was good that was lost in Saul and his reign. So not only were they great warriors, they were beloved leaders. Notice verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, beloved and lovely, this may not sound realistic with regard to Saul, but there was a time that it was said of him in chapter 10, there's none like him. 1 Samuel 10, there's none like him. Indeed, uh, the summary of Saul's reign in chapter 14 reads this, this way. Wherever he turned, he routed his enemies. He did valiantly. And we saw in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were utterly devoted to him because he had saved them from the Ammonites and Nahash. Now, this language of in life, in death, they were not divided. Now, that's a little confusing because we know that Jonathan and Saul had their differences. 
In fact, Saul had two different times tried to kill Jonathan, his own son. So what's going on here? Well, even with that, the elephant in the room is that the reason they weren't divided was because of the faithfulness of Jonathan to his father. Jonathan stayed faithful to his father even when his father tried to kill him and tried to kill his best friend, David. In spite of Jonathan's devotion to David, despite David's, Saul's hatred of David, Jonathan never abandoned his father and even died fighting beside him on Mount Gilboa. And together, he compares them to eagles and lions. Their military campaigns were, were swift and powerful and majestic. Not only that, not only did Saul bring protection to the people of God, he brought prosperity. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. His reign provided a stable society where Israel could prosper financially because of, of trade and agriculture. And so in verses 19 to 24, we see this time of national lament. He's calling the people of God to mourn nationally, to honor and remember the common grace that was on Saul. But in verse 25, he's going to take a turn. And he's going to go from a national lament to a personal one. Verse 25. How the mighty have fallen. Now that's the second time we've seen that. In the midst of the battle. We saw it again at verse, verse 19 for the first time. Now at the beginning of the last part of this lament... The central identity of, I think, the glory in verse 19 is suddenly revealed. The exact words of 19 are repeated, except the word glory is replaced by a name. Notice, your glory, verse 19, is slain. And in verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I think, I believe, that even as he laments the loss of Saul, this lament is centrally about the loss of Jonathan. And so without uttering a single negative word about Saul, which teaches us something about how to honor the dead who died in unbelief, so important for us, without uttering a single negative word, David actually infers that the glory of Israel was actually the son, Jonathan. Indeed, notice verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, Surpassing the love of women. Now, while he had called others to weep for Saul, he has a personal lament here for his brother, Jonathan. 
Everyone knew that Jonathan had deferred his rights and privileges to be the next king so that David could be the next king. He had protected, he had encouraged David through the years, the way a, a true friend should be and the way we should be with each other, not just the people we have a lot in common with. Uh, that's the way we should be with each other in the body of Christ. Jonathan had died to his own interest in order that David's interest could flourish and prosper. And while Saul had distributed gifts that actually would benefit him, Jonathan's selfless goodness never looked for a reward. It's a beautiful picture of our Christ who made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant, taking, coming in the likeness of man, and humbling himself and becoming obedient. And hence David's praise here. Notice, your love to me was extraordinary, passing the love of women. There is nothing sinister about that line. That's absolutely ridiculous for anyone to read something sinister into this line. Now, Scripture clearly take, uh, intends to teach us that the most intimate of relationships is a marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. So what gives here? Well, as you begin to read in the Old Testament, especially with the introduction of polygamy by Lamech in Genesis, the reality of marriage in the Old Testament often fell short of God's ideal. Marriage in ancient Israel took place primarily for the benefit of the tribes so that they could re reproduce themselves and become more in number. Oftentimes, kings would marry, like David did, for political advantage. They would marry um, brides of other kingdoms so that they could make alliances with those kings. It's not God's intention in, for marriage. Think of David. His first marriage was a political one with Michael, and then he started adding one bride after another which guarantees that he would never experience the intimacy of a godly marriage. It's impossible. But though David was impoverished by his unwholesome marriages, he was greatly enriched by his covenant friendship with Jonathan. And his untimely death led, left a, a hole in David's soul. Notice in verse 27. How the mighty have fallen. It's how it ends. And the weapons of war perished. Again with Jonathan on his mind. And so the lament. Ends. And begins. In the same way. And drives home the central point. This is the poem. That David wanted the people of God to know and which was written in the book of Jasher. And so this lament brings to an end the reign of Saul. And we have seen that Saul was a microcosm of Israel. And so when Saul dies because of apostasy and idolatry, it's symbolizing that Israel has died. 
as a nation. They are under the thumb of the Philistines. The king is dead. It's a picture of the death of a nation. But at the same time, this lament marks the rise of a new nation centered around a new king. One who is about to take the throne, David. The one who unofficially begins his reign by loving his enemies. But maybe the most important reason for this lament was to purposefully and you could say perpetually remind God's people that it was their own sin, their own idolatry that got them a king like Saul in the first place. And the fact that Saul died by suicide, I think that's telling. That's understood to be read between the lines that this tragedy was due to their sin. In other words, it was self-inflicted. That's what sin does. It causes self-inflicted wounds. And just as the Philistines had stripped Israel of its king and the protection that he afforded, sin also brings horrific loss to our lives. Sin is poison. Sin causes catastrophe. In every person's life. Sin is never worth it. Scripture goes as far to say this about sin. The wages of sin is death. Now we memorize that in Awana. And when you memorize something. And you get so used to the language. It's easy to overlook the gravity of the language. The wages of sin is death. Now that's not a wage I'm paying. It's a wage that I receive. As I work sin, I get a paycheck. So I go to work, I commit sin, and I get paid for my work. The wages of my work is death. That's what sin causes. I think that's what David is driving home and reminding us. And in David's lament, we are reminded that it does us no good to ignore the consequences of our sin, which is death. That's why we can do nothing to avoid it, because it's coming. Spurgeon eloquently said, Here is the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, and gone. And here, the history of man is no different. And so our greatest need, and the one thing that even scoffers and unbelievers cannot deny, that it's appointed unto man once to die. Our greatest need in this life is not a pay raise, a new relationship, a new job, or for my circumstances in my difficulties to change. My greatest need, your greatest need, is to have a living hope in certain death. 
And the rise of David as king points us to that hope. Because Israel is dead. The king is dead. There's no hope in the world. And now God is raising up a new king. And so David laments that the mighty have fallen, which actually pays the way to the rise of the true king. But in due time, David would fall as Saul fell. The mighty all eventually fall. They always fall. That's why we can't be deceived by the mighty. That's why it's also foolish to be jealous and envious of what we perceive to be the mighty. The mighty all fall. They are terrible Messiah replacements because they all fall. In the history of the world, all the mighty have fallen except one. Except one. The one in whom Isaiah said, the government shall be upon his shoulders. A government that has died in Saul but now a, a new government. And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Isaiah says, in fact, of the increase of peace, shalom, there shall be no end. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. Ironically, for a time, it appeared that this mighty one had fallen as well. Indeed, he had. Death stung him as it stung Saul. But there was a difference between Saul and this mighty one. Death was stinging Saul because of his sin, his rebellion. Death stung the greater mighty one, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of our sin. Our sin was imputed to him, and death stung him to death. But in so doing, death stung itself to death when it stung Jesus, because Jesus did not remain dead. And that's why Peter calls him the living hope. His resurrection from the grave, a bodily resurrection in history, in space, and in time, means a living hope for everyone who, by repentance of their sins and committed faith in him, who are united to him. And yes... We still experience death in this present age as the last enemy of God's kingdom to be destroyed. But the resurrection of Christ tells us it will be destroyed. The, this enemy in the end will have no place in the kingdom of God. It will have no place in the new heavens and the new earth. And for all the relationships and the loves that we experience in this life. Like the one David had with Jonathan. 
Wisdom says our first priority should be to our covenant relationship with our friend who sticks closer than any Jonathan, than any brother, whose love truly does surpass that of our spouse, of any marriage, because it's an eternal marriage between the the glorious bridegroom and his bride. And this marriage is as strong as death. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. And so let us lament death as David lamented death. It's something to be lamented. It's something to be grieved over. And by grace, through faith, in Embrace the life in Jesus that will someday put death to death once and for all. And sorrow with it. Isn't that what the table drives home? Isn't that what the Lord's table drives home? Isn't it beautifully providential that we are able to celebrate the table on a day where we're reminded from God's word that death is not the final word? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you that we have a greater king who arises from the ashes when it appears all hope is gone. And that king is not David, though he is a beautiful pointer to that king. We thank you, Lord, for King Jesus. And we say, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your great mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And even as David arose to be king, that's a pale reflection to the resurrection from the dead that was accomplished by our greater King Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we come to this table, that it would be a means of grace for your people as we reflect on the victory, as we reflect on the hope accomplished by our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.